It's so good to see each of you here in the house of the Lord this morning. We are returning after our Advent season to 2 Corinthians, which we've been working our way through this past year. We only have two more messages left in this series, uh, and this will be the next to last. Uh, This series that I've titled, This Treasure in Jars of Clay, I believe that kind of encapsulates the main theme of the whole letter, and the treasure being Christ and the jars of clay being us. Uh, So I wanted to start today talking about my father. One of his most painful experiences in life, at least in what I knew of his life, uh, was the final four years he spent in Badajoz. First four years he was there. He went there, there was not a Baptist church, there wasn't a an evangelical church that he knew of uh, when he arrived there, and uh, he came there to plant a church. I don't know if you know about work in Spain, but it's very difficult uh, to plant a church in Spain. But God miraculously used a summer evangelistic campaign, and we had like 20 young adults, uh, youth and young adults that came to Christ all at the same time. And they were so excited to learn about Christ that they begged my dad, can we meet every day? And uh, my dad committed to that. Uh, he was thrilled. It was, uh, he was exhausted, but uh, we met every day for several months after that summer where they first came to faith. And uh, my father poured his heart and soul into these uh, that he viewed as his children in Christ. And uh, after four years serving there and, and uh, planting a church there, Uh, We went to the United States for a year of furlough. When we came back, the situation in the church had changed. Uh, There there were murmurings against my father and people questioning his uh, spiritual giftedness for leading and wondering why he didn't do things like speak in tongues or things like that. And uh, the irony in this is that my father... Uh, over the past years had pleaded with God to give him that kind of gifting, but God had never seen fit to give my father those gifts. Um, And needless to say, those final four years were very difficult for him because he poured his heart and soul into these people. And some defended him staunchly, but others kept whispering. Um, And it was a painful uh, final four years. I think it's just one example I can point to Uh, that points out just how difficult it is to serve not just Christ, but the people God calls us to serve and to love in his name. And through it all, I think we need to remember that we have to focus on one thing, on living the gospel and not settling ever for any false version of it. I think that's what Paul is trying to show us in this second letter to the church in Corinth. I've titled the message today, In the Fence of the Gospel. And we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We will finish out the chapter, verses 11 through 21. Let's begin in verse 11. I have become a fool. You forced me, for I should have been recommended by you, for I am in no way inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. Indeed, the signs of an apostle were performed among you with great perseverance, with signs and wonders and powerful deeds. For how is it that you were treated worse than the rest of the congregations, except that I myself did not burden you? 
forgive me this wrong. Paul is wrapping up his fool's boast. He spent several chapters where he launched into this. Uh, you know, these false teachers who have infiltrated the church in Corinth are very prideful, and they are always bragging and boasting about all the great things that they have and that they are, and how I, as the apostle God used to first start sharing the gospel in Corinth, that I am somehow deficient or less than, or that uh, you shouldn't pay attention to what I'm trying to tell you. And so Paul has... Uh, realize that if he's going to confront this false version of Christianity that these teachers have tried to introduce into the church, he's going to have to use their methods of argumentation and subvert them completely with the true gospel and show, using the very things they're trying to hold on to, uh, show the lie of all of that. So Paul, in his fool's boast, has talked about great things that God has done, and he's even appealed to a vision he himself personally had 14 years prior where he was taken to heaven itself and there was exposed to things that cannot even be uttered on, in this earth. <coughs> so he, he talks about the kinds of things that these opponents take glory in, but what Paul does in all of this is subvert the whole pattern and, and he says, you know what, yeah, let's talk about all that, but you, you want to know what really matters, what has really made a difference, where I have discovered the power of Christ at work in me? I have found it most where I am weakest. In my lack, in my frailty, in my inability to bring anything of worth to the table, in my recognition of that, I have opened myself up to the glorious power of Christ. And in all of his boasts, it's very clear, the only thing Paul is bragging about is what Christ has done. And the only thing he's willing to say, let me brag about something. You guys want to brag? Let's brag. I am nothing. I am weak and broken, and I could never change anything in this earth by my own strength. I could not have changed any one of your hearts. I could not have done any of it. Christ is the one who has done it. Paul says, I, I have become a fool talking about bragging in Christ. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. But he says, you forced me to. How did the church in Corinth force Paul into this form of argumentation? He says, I should have been recommended by you. When these people showed up in church and started trying to tell you there's a way to follow Christ where you can still follow the Roman pattern of self-promotion and self-centered living and using other people as stepping stones for your private ambition and, and they've been telling them this is how you can follow Christ, be like us and let us trample you and take advantage of you to raise our own capital within the Christian world. And when they came in and started showing this, Paul says, you should have looked at them and said, that is not what it means to follow Christ. The Paul, who God used to share Christ with us, he showed us it's a different thing than what you're talking about. And they should have defended Paul and the gospel he had brought to them, but they didn't. 
They were enticed by it. Maybe we don't have to leave this sinful pattern of living behind. Maybe we don't have to stop living selfishly like we used to. Maybe we can dress it up in Christianity and continue to live the same way. And because they're toying with this false gospel, Paul has found himself forced to enter into this foolish boast, to expose the lie of it all. But they should have known better. And he says, I'm in no way inferior to these super apostles. But he says, remember, I'm nothing. I am nothing. But if you're looking for leaders who can point to things that God has done in their ministry, yeah, I can tick off all the things these opponents of mine can tick off. The signs of an apostle were performed among you with great perseverance. I, I stuck with it when I was with you, and I'm still in it with you. And God has done signs, wonders, and powerful deeds. I didn't do any of it. But if you're looking for credentials in terms of God doing stuff, yeah, God has done that kind of stuff in my life too. So what's your complaint against me? How did I treat you worse than any of the other congregations I've served in? Oh, wait, there is one thing. I never took a penny from you. I've let other churches give me their money, but I never took a penny from you. You see, when Paul arrived in Corinth and some very wealthy and influential people in the city came to faith in Christ, Paul determined right away, I'm not going to take their money. Because the Roman way was, if you're wealthy and you find a speaker that people like to listen to, a philosopher that people are very enamored with, then you become their patron. And that raises your capital within the Roman society. And people think you're some hot stuff because you have the best, uh, uh, the best philosopher in your employ. And uh, you enter into this patron-benefactor uh, relationship where Paul would have found himself basically in the status of an employee. And Paul was not about to do that with the gospel. He wasn't about to enter into those patterns and arrangements. So he worked hard. He was a tent maker. He worked hard when he was in there in Corinth, and uh, he met up with Priscilla and Aquila. They were also tent makers. They worked together, and he, he funded himself. And when he didn't have enough, uh, people from other churches in Macedonia supported him financially, but he never took any money from the people in Corinth because he wanted them to understand the truth of the gospel, that it's not about taking people's money. And it's not about jockeying for privilege and position within your society, that it is about service and love. <clears throat> so yeah, there's one difference. I never took your money. And Paul is being absolutely sarcastic when he says, forgive me this wrong. My bad. Excuse me for doing that to you. And the word he uses here that I've translated wrong, adikion, dikaiosune. Dikaios has the idea of right. Dikaiosune is the Greek word for righteousness. Adikion is unrighteous. It's the opposite of righteousness. Forgive me this great evil, this wickedness, this unrighteous act that I didn't take your money. 
It's a sad truth of our life in Christ. That oftentimes those who are trying to surrender fully to Christ and they're trying to live their lives as Christ has called us to live them and to really give their lives up to Christ in loving service of others are most challenged not by the world outside but by people inside the church who aren't serious about their walk with Christ. How many times uh, do people uh, inside the church who are insisting on a version of the gospel that does not require that we surrender to the Lordship of Christ. They want a version of the gospel that will let us continue to be self-centered and selfish. And when people are not willing to live their gospel life that way, they often suffer the attacks of those who want an easier version of following Jesus. And often... Our faith is most tested by those who claim to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul has found that to be true. Let me ask you, how have others tested your faith? And perhaps the more painful question, how have you caused others to have their faith tested? Let's keep going, verse 14. Look, for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to store up treasure for their parents, but parents for their children. But I will gladly spend and be utterly spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul says he's about to come visit them for the third time. The first time was when he was there to start the church on his second missionary journey. Now on his third missionary journey, God has put him in Ephesus, and he's been serving there for two and a half years. And apparently, from what we know of this letter, sometime during his time in Ephesus, he made a quick visit to, to Corinth that was he describes as a painful visit. And he went there to confront a problem of sin and people who were unwilling to repent of their sin. And it was a hard time for Paul. And it was a tearful visit. And he went home back to Corinth and wrote uh, a letter he's, he's uh, soaked in tears a hard letter uh, so all of that is leading up to this next letter that we're reading now and he's on his way he's already up in Macedonia he's going to come down soon but ahead of that he sends this letter 2 Corinthians and <clears throat> he says I'm coming to you a third time this is my third visit and he says, I'm not going to take your money this time either. He says, guys, this is what I'm trying for you to understand. I'm not trying to get your stuff. I'm not after what you can give me. I'm not after how you can better my life. I'm not after how you can raise my capital somehow. I'm not trying to despoil you or take advantage of you, or use you for my own ends. I don't want what you've got. I want you. 
How much better would our life together in Christ be if we stopped trying to get what we want from other people and just pursued them? If we just wanted each other? I don't want what's yours. I want you. Genuine relationships. And now he inverts the pattern that they've wanted to establish. These wealthy patrons in Corinth wanted to be the benefactors, and Paul, their benefactee, their employee. And Paul says, that's not the way we're related to one another. I am your parent in Christ. I'm the one who first brought the gospel to you, and I witnessed the miracle of Christ causing you to become a new creation in him. And I have been trying to raise you as a parent raises a child in the gospel. Now, it's not the children's obligation to save up and store up a big treasure so that their parents can inherit something from them. It's the parents who try to leave, bequeath a large inheritance to their children, who try to give over all they have to their children, not despoil them. That's the relationship that connects Paul to this church. And he says, I will gladly spend. In other words, anything I've got, I will, I will spend it for you guys. I will spend what I've got. And Paul didn't have much, but what he had, he laid on the line. Not only that, I myself will be utterly spent Paul is very literally grinding out his very life for these believers in Corinth, for the gospel he's serving, for the people he loves in Christ. It, it's, he's already described, he has been beaten num countless times and whipped and imprisoned and suffered shipwrecks and gone hungry and shivered and cold by the side of the road, traveling from one city to another to serve the body of Christ. And he says, I will be utterly spent. I will push my body until it collapses. But I will spend all I've got to spend for you, for your souls. How different a picture of leadership that is than people who are despoiling the people they supposedly lead, who are trying to take all they can from them, not just money, honor and glory, prestige. Paul asks a haunting question here. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul has demonstrated he loves them more than these false teachers who just showed up. They talk a good game. But they haven't suffered anything for them the way Paul has. And if I love you more than they do, are you going to respond with less love? Sadly, that's so often the case, isn't it? We find it with parents and children. Parents get up every morning, and one of the things that drives them to go to work, whether they want to or not, is they need to know that their children are going to be fed and have a place to stay. And they spend many sleepless nights worrying about their children when they grow up and start getting themselves into trouble. And they know because they've lived longer, they know some of the dark alleys their children are toying with, and they try their best to help them. 
But you know what happens? The kid, when he turns 14, has a friend at school that is nothing but mockery and uh, a disdain for anybody older than 15. And they convince them, oh, your parents don't know a thing. They don't love you. Take all their stuff. Take everything they give you, but you don't owe them anything. Let me tell you what you really need. Let me be your guide in life. Let me tell you what you should be doing with your life and the things, the values you should follow and you should pattern your life after it. And you know why kids listen to that? Because they want that. You know why the people in Corinth were attracted to these false teachers? You know why people in the church allow leaders to abuse and despoil them and take their money? Because these leaders tell them, listen, there is a version of following Christ where you don't have to change at all. There is a version of following Christ where you can be as selfish as I am. And you too can be wealthy and self-centered and still follow Christ and get eternal life out of it in the end. So yeah, people know that's not quite right. But boy, I like the sound of that. And you turn from the people who genuinely love you, who are sacrificing their lives for you because you're too busy looking for somebody to tell you that you can do whatever you want with your life, that you can be self-centered and selfish and that following Christ does not imply change of any kind. That God will be the one who comes behind you. You don't have to surrender to Jesus as Lord. You can be Lord. Let me ask you. How have you failed to appreciate the love of Christ given to you by others? Verse 16, but granting that I did not burden you, yet, crafty person that I am, I caught you by deceit. I have not exploited you through any of the persons I have sent to you, have I? I exhorted Titus and sent him together with the brother. Titus didn't exploit you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same footsteps? Paul says, maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, I haven't taken any money from you. Everybody knows that. Nobody can accuse me of that. But perhaps this is what some, of, some people are suggesting, that I'm involved in some kind of long con. After all, I've been writing to you uh, for some time now about this big offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Maybe that's how I'm trying to get all your money. Maybe I'm just uh, trying to deceive you and take everything from you in this manner. And Paul says, stop and think about it. Have I or anybody I have sent to you ever exploited you in any way? And he appeals to the most recent person Paul has sent to them. Paul sent Titus with another brother. He doesn't name, mention by name. Uh, and Titus has returned to Paul right before he sits down to write this letter. And we know from this letter that Titus's visit with the Corinthians was wonderful. 
In fact, he went there to encourage them and he returned encouraged and refreshed because the church just loved him to death. Paul says, Titus went because I begged him to go to you. He didn't exploit you, did you? Did he? He didn't despoil you or take advantage of you, did he? And think about it. Isn't that exactly the same way I acted when I've been among you? Don't we conduct ourselves in the same spirit? And of course, in the Greek, capitalization is not a thing. So some translators put that with a a small case S. I put it with a capital S. I think Paul is saying that they have all been conducting themselves in accordance with the Holy Spirit of God. That they have not simply shared a same sentiment but that what the commonality in all of them, in their interactions with the Corinthian believers, has been the very Spirit of God governing in their hearts. Did we not walk in the same footsteps? There is a commonality to true Christians. There's something about the presence of God in their hearts and the way in which they conduct themselves, the pattern by which they walk through life that demonstrates the genuineness of their claim to faith. I have a question for you. How are you demonstrating the true Christian patterns of living common to all who are in Christ. Can people look at you and say, oh, he's one of those. There's just something about the quality of his life. It just has the same smell to it. Let's finish, verses 19 through 21. Have you been thinking all along that we are defending ourselves to you? We are speaking in the presence of God, in Christ. And everything, beloved, is for building you up. For I fear, lest somehow when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and I may be found by you not as you wish, lest somehow there will be strife, Jealousy, expressions of anger, selfish ambitions, slanders, multiple instances of gossiping, multiple instances of arrogance, disorders. Lest when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who had sinned before and have not repented of the impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul asks a question. Do you think all along I'm writing this to defend myself before you? And in a sense, Paul is doing that. But Paul tells them, my focus is not just you. I am aware that everything I do, I do in the presence of God. And that is what I am giving an answer to. The fact that I am living my life in Christ. 
That's what this is all about. Paul soon uh, will arrive in Corinth, will finish gathering the offering for the saints, and before he sets out to return to Jerusalem to deliver that offering, he will sit down and write the letter of Romans there from Corinth and send it off and then head out on his journey back to Jerusalem. And in that letter to the Roman Christians... Paul is going to lay out the gospel and then he's going to reach chapter 12 of Romans and he's going to basically say, how do we respond to this gospel of Christ? Well, we do so by living lives of living sacrifice, seeing your entire life as an act of worship. That's basically what Paul's saying here. You think I'm just defending myself in front of you, I am trying to live my life in the presence of God and honor Him. And he says, everything we've done, and he reminds them the reason for this, beloved, everything we've been doing is to build you up Pay attention to people. Sometimes people claim to be doing things in the name of Christ. And all they're doing is spewing hatred and destruction and devastation left and right. If you're not building up, you're not doing the work of Christ. Paul says, everything is meant to build you up. Even confronting sin is not about destroying you. It's about building you up because sin will kill you. And I'm only trying to help everything for building you up. And he's, he says, oh, guys, let me be honest. I'm afraid. I have great trepidation about this upcoming visit. I'm afraid when I get there, I'm going to see you guys and say, this isn't what I wanted to see. I'm afraid I'm going to get there. You're going to look at me and say, boy, that's not what we wanted to see. What does he mean? He says, I'm afraid you will have relapsed into the patterns of living you had before you came to Christ. That self-centered, selfish, competitive, always trying to get the better of the others and an upper edge on everybody. I'm afraid I'll show up there and it'll be just like your life was before, full of strife and jealousy And these words from here on out, he says in the plural, every single one of them. So not just one instance, but multiple expressions of this in many people in the congregation. Anger, selfish ambition, slander, gossiping, arrogance, not just in one person, but all over the place. A spirit of arrogance, disorders. There won't be a commonality and a unity to your life as a congregation, but everybody's going to be pushing in his own direction, and it's going to be chaotic. That's what I fear, he says, when I show up there. And one more thing he says. I fear God may cause me once more, like like probably happened in his painful visit. Well, definitely happened from what he says. That when I go to you again, it's going to be again. Me having to confront people who are insisting on continuing to live in sin and, and I'm going to have to break down and cry over them. Their hard hearts. 
and the devastation sin is trying to accomplish in their lives and their willing partnership with sin in it. I fear that this problem of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that I'm going to find people have still not been willing to repent of it and leave it behind. Here's the heartbreaking thing that Paul is trying to do. He's trying to tell the church in Corinth, if you want Christ to save you, this is what it looks like. You have to let him be Lord of your life and heart. And salvation means not just freedom from the final punishment of sin, but freedom from the power of sin so that you are no longer captive to its desires and its self-centered patterns of living. If you want to follow Christ, it's because you're done with that. You tried it your way and it doesn't work and you have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and He is in the process of remaking your heart from the inside out so that you no longer live for yourself. You live for him and because of him for others. There is no gospel that circumvents that. And if you're hoping for a version of following Christ that is not going to require your heart to be utterly surrendered and transformed, then you have not understood the gospel. We are being saved from sin. Paul was not a legalist. Some people try to paint him that way. But you know, of all the writers of the New Testament, Paul is the furthest out there in terms of looking and saying, okay, this was the old covenant. In the old covenant of the law, it was a very much a, an exchange of goods. You keep the law, God gives you life. And of course, the whole point of the first covenant was to help us understand we can't keep the law. The first covenant was incapable of giving us the life it talked about. Because there was no way to keep it. We have already messed up. Before we even try to start, we've already messed up. But the, the first covenant had all these things. And Paul was the first to say, don't worry about circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant. Circumcision. You don't need to do that. Dietary laws. You will be holy as I am holy. You will not eat the things the people around you eat. And you will be holy through your diet. Leviticus. Paul said, no, Jesus declared all things clean. And if you want to eat, eat. If you don't want to eat, don't eat. It's fine. It's a non-issue in Christ. Just pay attention to how eating or not eating is going to be interpreted by others and, and what impact that's going to have on others. Think of it that way. When it came to sacred days, things like Sabbath, boy, is there a big issue in the Old Testament. Sabbath is huge. And sacred festivals that are meant to be kept forever. Paul said, if you want to observe every day, do it. Knock yourself out. If you don't want to, some of you want to treat every day as sacred, go for it. We're not bound by that in Christ. 
But you know, when it comes to human sexuality, Paul never discarded what the Old Testament had to say about that. He affirmed it. And Paul very clearly in his letters addressed homosexuality, which he said was unnatural and was sign of God's wrath against stuff. Not, not a destructive wrath, a redemptive wrath, in which God says, you want to do this that I've told you not to do? I will allow you to do it, and you can discover in your own flesh by experience and in your own life spiritually that this is not a good thing and uh, with the hopes that you can turn from it and be rescued. But it is described by Paul as an evidence of God's wrath against those who have turned away from him. Paul confronted incest. In 1 Corinthians 5, he addresses the issue of a man who is shacked up with a woman who used to be married to his father. And he says, not even pagans will put up with that. What are you guys doing? And uh, confronts that. In uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, he talks about the idea of sex outside of marriage. And he says, if you don't want to marry, don't marry. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you feel like this is a tremendous burning thing in your life, then don't burn up. Get married and exercise your sexuality the way God told you to. He speaks against adultery. And let me explain very simply, uh, biblical sexuality is really easy. It's a whole lot less complicated than what people out there are doing today. We are to exercise our sexuality only with one person of the opposite gender with whom we are married. Simple. Couldn't be any simpler than that. And Paul says, I mourn. And you think the society we live in today invented these problems with sexuality? You think we invented the whole idea of homosexuality or of cross-dressing or whatever it is you want to do? You think we came up with that? This has been going on as long as there have been people. And you wonder, why in the Old Covenant was the sign of the covenant circumcision? Why did uh, Jewish males have to uh, cut off the foreskin of their uh, sexual organ? Well, it's because they were signaling to the world that their sexuality was part of their commitment to God. And they would raise their children in, in a home that followed the patterns of living that God called them to live. If we're going to follow Christ, one of the things that has to be surrendered to him is not just the things of our life that we know are a mess we want him to fix up. We have to surrender all of it. And our sexuality is part of that. And the Bible consistently calls us to repent of, of self-centered approaches to sexuality. And this is the way our society has patterned our thinking about sex. Sex is about what I want. It's not about anything else than what I want. And if I want it, then automatically I can declare it good and do it because I'm following my heart. And that's fine. If that's the way you want to live your life, live it that way. But if you want to follow Christ, 
You have to have come to the point where you say, you know what, my heart is wicked and deceitful, and if I keep following it, it, there's going to be nothing left but a dry husk by the end of it all. And I'm ready to discover what it means to live. And I'll surrender. I'll let Christ change my way of living and my sexuality from self-centered and self-pleasing to an act of service and commitment that honors God and cements a lifelong relationship and that creates the ideal circumstance within which children may be raised. And you may think, for me saying that, that I'm being mean, that I'm stepping on your toes that I'm calling you away from something you want to do. I'm sorry, but that's just what the gospel is. You see, the basic problem we have is that we want to do what's killing us. And until we recognize this and surrender our lives to Jesus and let him take us in a different direction, there is no rescuing us. But I'll tell you, the whole point of this is not to tear you down, not to destroy your identity. The whole point of this is to actually build you up. But let me tell you a truth that the world is lying to you about. Gender is a gift God gave you. It's not something you have to come up with. The Bible says God created them in the beginning. Male and female, he created them. Your life and your gender are gifts. Now, I will agree with many people out there. Sometimes what people call cultural uh, patterns of behavior that are expected from certain genders, uh, sometimes people try to superimpose those on the Bible. And you'll find, if you look at the Bible carefully, that what we call biblical manhood and biblical womanhood is not there. People make it up. They superimpose their own values on the Bible and read it where it isn't. So in terms of, uh, you know, I like soccer and I'm a girl, so I guess, you know, I like hunting and I'm a girl, so I guess I can't be a girl. That's ridiculous. We're not talking about gender. We're talking about cultural expectations. And those, I'm fine with you confronting and saying, yeah, girls can do any of that stuff. That's fine. And you can be a boy and say, I actually like fashion. Some of us here give evidence of that. That's fine. That doesn't mean you're not a man. But let's let's not offend the God who gave us the gift of life by denying what he gave us. Let's discover that identity in him. What does it look like to be the woman you created me to be? Because I have inclinations, my culture says, are masculine. Should I uh, behave a different way? Well, maybe that's fine. Maybe you're, you're, the, the things that make up who you are, that's exactly what intended, God intended you to be. But I will tell you, in terms of sexuality, God intended you for to have sex uh, with pers- a person of the opposite gender. And only within the oath of marriage. What it boils down to is, do we want to live or do we want to stay where we are?
And if you want a version of the gospel that lets you stay where you are, that lets you do what you want to do, and lets you continue living life the way you've always lived it, and assume the patterns of behavior you've always followed, and simply tack on Jesus as some kind of a supplement, I'm here to tell you, Jesus will not do that for you. And there are people out there selling that version of the gospel. And you may be attracted to it because it's very self-serving. And it's very appealing to think that. That I get to live the life I want to live any way I want. And I get to tell God what to do. But you can no more do that to God than you can cause the sun to stop spinning. It's not in your power. Sin is trying to destroy our lives and has twisted our thinking. If you want to live, this is, the, this is the way. This is the pattern. This is the path. Hold on to Christ. Come what may. Surrender to this completely, radically different way of living life. And let's be genuine about it. Let's not play Let's not pretend, but let's genuinely surrender our hearts and life to Jesus. I have a final question for you. Does your behavior and your sexuality match your claim to belong to Jesus Christ? What does it mean to follow Christ? According to Paul, this means we have to be willing to put our faith and love, have our faith and love put to the test by people who make it hard for us to serve Christ and love them. We have to be willing to bear with that. Don't complain to me about how hard it is to serve Christ and to be in the church and how people in the church have hurt you. You think you don't hurt Christ? Does he give up on you? It means spending our resources, pouring out our very lives for those Christ has called us to love and serve. It means we behave in accordance with God's spirit. We walk together in those very footsteps of Jesus. It means we live our lives for God, not for anyone else. We live our lives in Christ. And we do everything we do for the good of others, to build them up, not tear them down. We abandon selfish patterns of living, the ones we had before, this fighting and slandering and jostling for privilege and position. We stop practicing a self-centered sexuality and we surrender it to the Lordship of Christ. I want to challenge you today to embrace the true gospel, to come to Christ and, and lay your life in his hands and stop looking for people that will give you a version of the gospel that lets you not change. You want to live? Surrender. We're going to sing a song. This is your opportunity to respond to God's word. Whatever God may have put in your heart today, if he's calling you to surrender to him, I want you to come and say, yes, Jesus, I want to surrender to you completely.
That's the call this morning. We're going to stand. I'd like to ask, we're going to have some people here at the front on either side. They're just brothers and sisters like you and me. They're here for you to share with them. This is what God's put on my heart this morning. And they're going to pray for you. That's all they're going to do. Please come while we sing.